You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 238, The Court Martial of Benedict Arnold. When we last left General Benedict Arnold back in episode 219, he had resigned his position as military commander of Philadelphia and had just gotten married to Peggy Shippen. Arnold had resigned his command in the face of numerous criminal charges alleging corruption, misuse of power, and consorting with loyalists. The charges were brought by the state of Pennsylvania and supported by its president, Joseph Reed. Arnold retained his commission as a major general and demanded a court-martial in order to clear his name. Over the course of moving it from state charges to military charges in the Continental Army, many of the charges were dropped or consolidated. George Washington had initially tried to convene a court-martial shortly after the charges were brought in the spring of 1779, hoping to get the matter over with as quickly as possible and get one of his best combat generals back into action. President Reed, however, did not want these charges brushed away. He notified Washington that the prosecution needed time to build its case. If the army tried to push through a quickie court-martial and absolve Arnold of wrongdoing, then Pennsylvania would cut off its supplies to the Continental Army. Bowing to this pressure, Washington gave Pennsylvania time to build its case, and he scheduled the trial for June of 1779. However, continued delays pushed that trial back for months. Meanwhile, Arnold remained in Philadelphia, falling deeper into debt and trying to build a life with his new wife without any real way to support her. At this point, he opened up secret communications with the British, offering to betray his country. None of this, however, had come to light in the public. Americans were divided on Arnold. Some saw him as a great general who had been treated poorly by government officials and who was a real hero of the revolution. His detractors saw him as a vain, corrupt man who consorted with loyalists and, despite whatever contribution he made to military victories, was no longer worthy to remain a military leader. It seems that the overwhelming majority, however, held the former opinion. Arnold was a hero one who had been critical to many of America's early successes and should be continued to be recognized as such. Arnold certainly had made his share of enemies during his military rise. In 1776, Arnold had nearly faced a different court-martial. That conflict stemmed from his criticism from the decision of another court-martial that he had demanded against subordinate officers, who he believed had failed to follow his orders. The only thing that saved Arnold at that time from being court-martialed was the fact that his military services were needed to defend against a British invasion from Quebec. There was no love lost between Arnold and most of the officers who had served with him, though, in earlier parts of the war. 
While many of them might have had a grudging respect for his abilities on the battlefield, he simply did not get along well with other officers, he had a prickly personality, and many thought he put his desire for money and personal fame ahead of the needs of the country. The proximate cause of the charges he now faced were primarily the result of Arnold's willingness to associate with and protect the interests of loyalists in Philadelphia. As military commander, following the British evacuation in 1778, Arnold mixed with the Philadelphia elite, many of whom had consorted with the British during the occupation of the city. Many Philadelphians had suffered greatly from that British occupation, and they resented those who had collaborated with the British and in doing so maintained their property and creature comforts. These Philadelphians wanted the collaborators to pay. Arnold, however, saw these people as the real leaders of the city, the merchants who could actually get things done. Further, Arnold wanted to be accepted by the elites of society, something that the orphaned boy who had had to fight his way to the top thought he deserved. The Radicals couldn't really just charge Arnold with treating the Philadelphia Loyalists decently. Not only was that not a crime, Washington and Congress had instructed Arnold to do just that. Washington did not want to see a reign of terror go after Philadelphians who had done what they needed to do to survive the British occupation. Rather, Washington and much of Continental Congress was forward-looking focused on returning Philadelphia to its role as a producer of goods and supplies needed to continue the war effort. The commercial and economic leaders of the city were crucial to making that happen. So, the radicals couldn't go after Arnold for being nice to the loyalists, but they could go after him on charges of corruption and abuse of power. They accused Arnold of using his position of authority as military commander to profit himself personally. Although a great many radicals in Philadelphia resented Arnold, one of the most powerful was Pennsylvania President Joseph Reed. It was Reed who had brought the charges against Arnold and who had prevented Washington from sweeping those charges under the rug. The Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania had used the kitchen sink approach and had just thrown a whole litany of charges against Arnold, hoping that a few of them would stick. When the matter moved to a Continental Army court-martial, Arnold faced a slim-down four charges. Number one, allowing a Loyalist ship to leave Philadelphia with valuable cargo. Two, shutting down Philadelphia shops from all commerce while at the same time making purchases of his own from stored goods for personal profit and resale. Three, imposing menial duties on militia soldiers and four, appropriating state wagons to transport his private property for his own benefit. Arnold's trial had been delayed, at first because Reed insisted on being given time to build a case. It had been scheduled for June 1st to accommodate Reed. However, by that time, the summer campaign began, and there was no time to gather a large group of senior military officers to hear the case. The trial date got pushed back several times, but it wasn't until the Continental Army settled into its winter quarters in Morristown that the long-awaited trial could finally begin, starting on December 23rd. Because Arnold was such a senior officer, the normal protocol of being judged by those more senior than him was waived. All of the 12 officers who sat on the court-martial were subordinate to General Arnold. 
Also, due to changes in availability, the court's composition, when it began first on June 1st, changed considerably to new officers who presided at the trial that began in December. At that time, Major General Robert Howe headed the court-martial. Also presiding were Brigadier Generals William Maxwell, Henry Knox, and Mordecai Gist. The remainder of the 12-man court-martial consisted of colonels and even one lieutenant colonel. Lieutenant Colonel John Lawrence, who had prosecuted several other generals in prior years, led the prosecution. As was the norm at the time, General Arnold defended himself. The first charge against Arnold was that he had permitted a Loyalist ship to leave Philadelphia. The story gets pretty complicated. A group of partners, led by Richard Shule, had a ship, the Charming Nancy, in Philadelphia in the spring of 1778, while the British still occupied the city. The partners were trying to get the ship out of town with its valuables before either the British or the Americans could seize it. The owners convinced the British that they wanted to sail to New York as part of the general evacuation. However, they were also concerned about being captured by American privateers that preyed upon ships leaving British-occupied Philadelphia. Shule had gone to Valley Forge to see if he could get a pass that would prevent privateers from being able to take his ship. And, of course, he told the leaders there that he was going to go to an American-controlled city. Most of the leadership at Valley Forge saw him as a collaborator and pretty much threw him out of their tents. Shule met with Benedict Arnold, who at the time was still in Valley Forge, awaiting the final evacuation of Philadelphia. Arnold met with him, talked with the man, and gave him a pass, allowing the charming Nancy to leave Philadelphia and go to any American-controlled port. When the ship left Philadelphia during the British evacuation, it was seized by a privateer and taken to Egg Harbor, New Jersey. After several months of fighting, the American prize court accepted the validity of Arnold's pass and permitted the owners to keep the ship and its cargo. Arnold's defense was simply that he believed that the owners were Americans trying to prevent their ship and cargo from being seized by the British and then he granted the pass in order to prevent the goods from falling into enemy hands. The prosecution attempted to show that the owners of the Charming Nancy had sold Arnold an interest in the cargo, and that Arnold was acting out of that personal interest and had defied Congress's instructions not to permit any ships or cargo to leave Philadelphia. The problem with the prosecution's case was that there was no evidence that could prove Arnold had any ownership interest, and Arnold had issued the pass one day before Congress finalized its orders barring any ships from leaving Philadelphia. In truth, Arnold did have a personal interest in the ship, but the prosecution could not prove it at trial. The second charge was that after Arnold had taken control of Philadelphia, that he had purchased goods from warehouses that had been ordered by Congress to be held for inventory and potential confiscation. When the British abandoned Philadelphia in a hurry, they could not take everything of value, nor did they really make much effort to destroy it. Congress had issued orders essentially preventing the sale or movement of any goods until the Army could go in and determine what items were in the city, who owned them, and whether they were subject to seizure. General Arnold was responsible for executing those orders. A great many Loyalists feared that their goods would be seized by the army 
because of their collaboration with the enemy during the occupation. So these guys were desperate to get their goods out of there or to sell them quickly for any amount. The prosecution accused Arnold of buying goods at pennies on the dollar, while at the same time barring anyone else from buying or selling anything. Arnold defended himself by denying any personal interest in any of the goods that had been embargoed. He readily agreed that he had executed his orders from Congress to prevent the sale, transfer, or removal of any items by anyone else. He also conceded that had he made money on any purchases of these goods, that doing so would be both illegal and repugnant. Arnold categorically denied making any deals in which he purchased or took any ownership interest in the goods that had been sequestered on behalf of Congress. Once again, Arnold probably did do this, but the prosecution was unable to give any conclusive proof that he had done so. The third charge involved the misuse of militia. This seemed to be a rather petty charge that stemmed from an incident where one of Arnold's aides, Major Franks, ordered a militia sergeant named William Matlack to go fetch a barber. Matlack happened to be the son of Timothy Matlack, who sat on Pennsylvania's Supreme Executive Council. Arnold had ignored Matlack's complaints about this matter. At trial, Arnold's defense was simply that soldiers under the command of an officer must follow orders. Enlisted men regularly performed acts of service for officers, and there was no good legal precedent for thinking otherwise. The fourth charge against Arnold was that he had used wagons owned by the state of Pennsylvania to transport personal property from Egg Harbor, New Jersey. Arnold, in this case, readily admitted that he used wagons to transfer property back to Philadelphia. The British were about to attack Egg Harbor, and the use of the wagons prevented those goods from falling into the hands of the British. Further, Arnold noted that he had reimbursed Pennsylvania for the cost of using the wagons so that he did not improperly benefit from the use of government property. Arnold brought witnesses and documents to back up his defense. At the same time, he stressed his own sacrifices that he had made for the country. He savaged Reed, bringing up an old story about how Reed had betrayed General Washington back in 1776 when Reed was Washington's aide and at the same time corresponding with General Charles Lee to imply his support that Lee should replace Washington as commander-in-chief. The trial lasted just over a month, but a large portion of that time was the result of breaks caused by the terrible blizzard conditions that happened in northern New Jersey that month. By late January, the court reconvened to render its verdict. The court dismissed charges two and three. The prosecution did not produce any good evidence that Arnold had purchased any of the warehouse items in Philadelphia, and it just dismissed the charge of misusing the militia for personal service because it really didn't articulate any wrongdoing. As for the first charge, permitting the ship in possession of the enemy to have a pass for an American port, the court called this behavior irregular, but it didn't go so far as to say it implied any criminal behavior. On the fourth charge, the use of state wagons to transport personal property, the court found this to be, quote, imprudent and improper. Even though Arnold had paid for the use of the wagons, an officer could not simply use his military authority to take the state property for personal benefit and then just pay for it later. 
Even so, the court did not see a finding of guilt to be a serious infraction that required dismissal from service or any other real penalty. It recommended that General Washington reprimand Arnold for his behavior. The final verdict was really more about poor judgment and arguably an effort simply to maintain good relations with Pennsylvania by not simply granting a blanket acquittal with honor. The court-martial submitted the verdict to Congress, which gave its approval on February 12th by the vote of 23-3. to 3. For some reason, Congress didn't immediately communicate its approval of the conviction back to Washington. President Huntington provided Washington with a formal notice in a letter dated March 11th, along with a printed copy of the court-martial proceedings. Washington, pursuant to his duty, issued a written reprimand as part of his general orders for April 6th of 1780. The general orders simply repeated a summary of the charges and the verdict, as well as Congress's reprimand. In the final sentences, Washington issued his own reprimand as required by the court. Quote, The commander-in-chief would have been much happier on an occasion of bestowing a commendation on an officer who has rendered such distinguished service to his country as Major General Arnold. But in the present case, a sense of duty and a regard to candor oblige him to declare that he considers his conduct in the issuance of the permit as particularly reprehensible, both in a civil and military view, and in the affair of the wagons, as imprudent and improper. In addition, Washington included a personal note to Arnold, essentially reminding Arnold that, as military leaders, they needed to remain above reproach. I think the note also says a lot about how Washington regarded his own position within the army. Quote, Our position is the purest of all. Even the shadow of a fault tarnishes the luster of our finest achievements. The least indiscretion may rob us of the public favor so hard to be acquired. I reprimand you for having forgotten that, in proportion as you have rendered yourself formidable to our enemies, you should have been guarded and temperate in your deportment toward your fellow citizens. Exhibit anew those noble qualities which have placed you on the list of our most valued commanders. I will myself furnish you as far as it may be in my power, with opportunities for regaining the esteem of your country. In his note to Arnold, Washington seemed to make clear that he was eager to get Arnold back in the field, where Arnold could regain public esteem and restore his reputation as an honorable warrior. Arnold, however, remained frustrated. In a letter about this time sent to Silas Dean, Arnold wrote, quote, I believe you will be equally surprised with me when the court-martial, having fully acquitted me of the charge of employing public wagons or defrauding the public, or of injuring or impeding the public service, yet in their next sentence say, I ought to receive a reprimand. He clearly was not in any frame of mind to return to military service or restore his reputation. A few weeks before the final reprimand, Arnold's wife had given birth to their first child, Edward. Arnold seemed focused on beginning a naval career, having written Washington about the idea of taking a fleet to sea. Arnold had been a merchant captain before the war and had already acted as a naval commander on Lake Champlain. 
a naval command would have given him not only an opportunity for more military glory, but would also allow him to recover from his financial troubles as he would be entitled to a share of any prizes captured at sea. Washington passed along Arnold's request to Congress, but did not support or oppose it. The Continentals, though, did not have any ships or sailors to create a new fleet for Arnold, and putting him in a command above all the other Navy captains who had been fighting for so many years to get ships and crews would have created a political firestorm. A few weeks after the reprimand, Arnold also received word from the Board of Treasury that it had disallowed some of the requests that it had already had paid him for, and that Arnold now had to repay Congress £1,000 sterling. Arnold, who was already hopelessly in debt and still hoping to get more money from Congress, was beyond frustrated with his situation. So, around this same time, Arnold renewed his secret correspondence with British Major John Andre. In late March, he had sent General Clinton details about defenses around Charleston, South Carolina, looking to prove his worth to the British Army. He began looking for an opportunity to switch sides, and while doing so, to turn over as valuable a piece of property as he could in order to maximize his cash reward from the British. Arnold began writing to General Philip Schuyler to intercede with Washington to give him a new appointment as commander of West Point. Next week, we're going to look at the hardships endured by the Army during the winter at Morristown. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Lee Seam. I also want to welcome Mims and Stephen Freeman, who begin pledges at the Privy Council level last month. Mims is someone who encouraged me to start this podcast many years ago and has been a source of invaluable encouragement ever since. I also appreciate one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo from Keith Thompson, Richard Smith, Michael Volmar, and Scott Greenberg. 
I really do appreciate everyone who can help support this podcast, allowing me to cover my expenses and keep it free for those who cannot. Just a reminder that I plan to attend the ninth Annual Conference of the American Revolution in Williamsburg, Virginia, on the weekend of March 18th, 2022. There are lots of great speakers. I'm not one of them. I'm just going as a participant, but I'm really looking forward to it. As of this recording, there are still tickets available. If you're interested in attending, I'd love to see you there. Go to americashistoryllc.com for more details. Another upcoming event on April 23rd, 2022, I will be speaking as part of a panel at the Authors of the American Revolution Congress in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. If you're interested in going to that, go to nathanspapers.com for more details. This week, General Benedict Arnold gets his court-martial. I've sometimes heard that it was Washington's reprimand that finally pushed Arnold into betraying his country, but the sequence of events does not really square with this theory. Arnold reached out to the British long before the court-martial was even called. He was providing the British with intelligence all through the many months of hearings against him. Washington's reprimand was actually rather soft. Washington noted Arnold's valuable service in America and indicated that he still valued the general, even if he found some of his actions to be wrong. Washington was convinced that Arnold could put these complaints behind him if he would only resume command and rack up a few more battle victories. Arnold, however, was already down the path of betraying his country, and we will, of course, cover his actual departure from the Continental Army for the British Army in a later episode. It does appear that Arnold was waiting to make his betrayal until after the court-martial had ended, but only because he was waiting to get a valuable new command that he could turn over to the British as part of his betrayal. I've received a few comments asking why I don't speak of Arnold in a more condemnatory way. The truth is, I think his actions speak for themselves. If I have to tell you that someone betraying his comrades and switching sides simply for what appears to be a desire for money and financial security is a bad thing, then I think we have a larger problem. But my goal in all of this is trying to understand why Arnold went down the path that he did. I'll leave it to others to judge him. It's really understanding what could turn a man in this direction that interests me. As far as the charges that Arnold faced at his court-martial, he was actually factually guilty of the charges, as the historical record proves. But the charges themselves were not considered that extraordinary. Many political leaders mixed personal and public resources on many occasions. I think Arnold had a point in that what he was doing was no different than what many other men of power were doing, but that he was being made a target because people disagreed with his politics and associations. Again, none of this excuses his later actions, but I think he did have a point about the weight of these accusations against him. I've already recommended a couple of Arnold biographies on past episodes, but there is a relatively new one that covers his wartime years pretty well. It's called The Tragedy of Benedict Arnold, An American Life by Joyce Lee Malcolm. The bulk of this book covers Arnold's service in both the Continental Army and the British Army during the war, 
as well as the events surrounding his decision to switch sides. The author, Dr. Malcolm, currently teaches constitutional law at George Mason University's Law School. Her education is in the field of history, not law, and she's written a number of other books about this era. This one is her latest, published in 2018. My online recommendation is the record of the court-martial itself. The title is The Proceedings of a General Court-Martial for the Trial of Major General Arnold. It's available as an ebook on archive.org. The original proceedings were published in 1780, the same year as the court-martial, although the copy available is a reprint from 1865. If I had to guess, I suspect the reason for a reprint in 1865 was that dealing with traitors was on a lot of people's minds that year. As always, I've included a direct link to the proceedings on my blog and website. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com and look down at the bottom of this week's episode and you'll see a link to my online recommendation. You can also find a complete list of all past recommendations on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week asks, why did George Washington and other men in his time wear white wigs? Well, first of all, Washington did not wear a wig. It never really became as popular in America as it did among elites in Europe. There were many in America who did wear them. John Hancock certainly wore one, as did others. Some wealthy colonists wore them mostly to formal events, but perhaps not every day. The fashion of wearing wigs has been traced back to King Louis XIII of France, who reigned in the early 1600s. The king began to go bald at a relatively young age and wore a wig to cover up that fact. His son, the future King Louis XIV, also began to go bald in his teen years, causing him to begin wearing wigs at an early age as well. As was the case with many things, if the king did something, many others at court would follow suit. So many nobles and courtiers soon adopted the practice of wearing wigs. It quickly became a fashion symbol of the upper class. As was common at the time, fashions among French elites crossed the channel, as English elites picked up on the fashion as well. King Charles II, going prematurely gray, adopted the French fashion of wearing a wig. As in France, the custom adopted by the king quickly spread to courtiers and other elite members throughout the country. Most wigs were made at the time from goat hair or horse hair. One of the problems with wigs was that they often began to smell and could attract lice. To avoid those problems, people began to powder their wigs, usually with some mix made out of starch and lavender. This covered up the odor, reduced moisture, and kept away lice. It also lent the white appearance to the wigs. So a white wig quickly became an indicator that the wig was lice-free and did not stink. Quality wigs became quite expensive. The finest wigs could cost an inflation-adjusted equivalent of more than $10,000. How big and fancy one's wig was became a sign of one's wealth and status. It's also where we get the term big wig. In the colonies, wigs also became a symbol of wealth and status, 
especially among colonists who followed fashions in London. However, the excessively fancy and expensive wigs did not really seem to catch on in America. Many members of the elite, including Washington, simply powdered their hair to make it white, but did not wear a wig. The white powder was a nod to fashion, but did not serve as much purpose as powdering wigs. Benjamin Franklin went to France during the American Revolution to represent the Continental Congress. At that time, wigs were considered essential to being in good society. Showing up at an event without a wig would be similar today to showing up at a party and not wearing a shirt. It wasn't exactly considered indecent, but it made the person appear to be quite uncultured. Franklin went wigless. It played into his portrayal of the rough frontiersman from America. This was part of his celebrity status in France and had a real impact. Now, despite Franklin's wigless popularity, wigs did remain in fashion for another decade or two after the war. They began to fall out of favor. Britain pushed the end of the fashion in 1795 by requiring a rather expensive license to buy hair powder. The revolution in France killed off quite a number of extravagant fashion trends, including the wig. During the Reign of Terror, wearing a wig could be grounds for losing one's head. By the early 19th century, the wig had largely fallen out of fashion, except in a few circles, such as with judges and attorneys in Britain, where they still can be found today. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or reach out to me on my Facebook group, Twitter, or Quora. Links to all my social media are on my blog and website. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.